Hi, everyone. A quick note before we begin this week's episode. Stick around to the end for a late-breaking addition to the show, a bonus segment about OpenAI's mind-blowing new AI video generation technology, Sora, with insights from a Seattle-area startup veteran who is deeply involved in the space. Stick around for that in the final segment of this week's show. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the most interesting stories in the news. John, I used to love it when newspaper columnists would have a little bit more of a grab bag, catch up on things that they've been reporting on. Backstory. Tidbits. So let's do that this week. All right, so some of the things that are on my mind, which we'll talk about later on, include a compelling new book about Amazon, at least based on the description so far, and a little plot twist that I found related to the publisher of this upcoming book about Amazon. So Good tease. Yes. Curious what that is. We'll talk about that later on. I've been talking to some companies in the region for an upcoming story that are doing something radical that would have been very normal just five years ago. So we'll talk about that. Another good tease. Later. I know what that one is, but that's <laughs> that's going to be a good story. But first, John, the GeekWire Awards are coming up May 9th. This is where we recognize the best, the brightest in the Pacific Northwest technology community focused in part on startups, but also a wide range of companies Tell us about the GeekWire Awards and the deadline that's coming up. Yes, nominations are due by February 29th, so mark that on your calendar. We are taking nominations from across the community in more than a dozen categories. So if you think you have what it takes to become a GeekWire Awards finalist this year, make sure you put your name in the hat, and uh, we'll see if you make the cut. So categories include Startup of the Year. Are we doing Next Tech Titan yes, this year? Yes, Next Tech Titan is back this year. Uh, one that I know we're driving uh, nominations for right now is UX Design of the Year. So if you're very proud of your product team and everything they've accomplished with your product, that's a great award. Workplace of the Year, so that recognizes companies with fantastic cultures. Yeah, it's a real great mix of uh, categories this year, and we hope everyone will consider applying and nominating themselves or nominating a great entrepreneur or innovator or creative company in the region. Go to geekwire.com slash events, and you can find all of our events, including the link to our nomination form for the GeekWire Awards. All right. I love this event. It's always a fun one. It's the Oscars of the Pacific Northwest tech scene. And our events team has really stepped it up over the past few years in terms of the production. It's extremely entertaining. So check it out. And table sponsorships are available now too if you want to absolutely just reach out to us at events at geekwire.com if you have any questions okay i ran across a company this past week and i'll just mention which company it is i'm going to write the story soon but i want to mention this in part because i want to find out if there are other companies out there that have brought employees back or are requiring employees as a default to be in the office not one day a week, not two days, not three days, but five. Oh, I thought you were going to say seven days. <laughs> we're not there yet. <laughs> Forget the four-day work week. We're going seven days. Yeah. No, this company that I talked to, Statsig, it's out in Bellevue. 
out on the inter- Interstate 90 corridor, they are at five days a week. And it's actually not correct to say they've gone back to being five days a week because they always have been. The CEO of StatSig, Vijay, who used to work at Facebook, explained that he, based on his experience from the beginning, decided they were going to work in person. They had these amazing filtration systems in their first office with masks. Of course, they don't need to do that anymore to that extent. And so they are in the office by default five days a week. I went over and old school sat in on their 2 p.m. stand-up, which they do every single day. And he thinks that they are better positioned as a startup. He says their clock speed, to use a tech term, is just much faster than companies that are hybrid or remote because there's no question about when you raise an issue or when you're able to get in touch with somebody because they're in the next desk over or right across the office. And he's convinced that this is a better way to run a company. What do you think? Well, we've had this debate and discussion for years now since the COVID pandemic, and I think it's really mixed. I do. I think companies can succeed with various formats and various styles as it relates to their their own culture and their own workforce. I've heard of very successful companies that are all remote, and you can't dispute the success that they've had with a fully remote team. So. I think it can work both ways. There are benefits and negatives to each and more power to him if he feels that this is the best best approach. It can be both a selling point and a, a detractor for recruiting tech talent because I think there are people that do really crave the full in-office environment and do see the benefit of that. There are folks that have where that ship has sailed and have certainly wanted to go to fully remote. And I think putting your stake in the sand one way or the other. I mean, a flip side of this is a company like Zillow, which has really gone remote first. Uh, well, they have, they're, they have an office, but they encourage remote work for sure. And it's a, it's a priority for them. So they've put their stake in the sand as, as that format for their work style and their culture. Statsig has put their stake in the sand and the other one. And I think that's good because you can recruit people that buy into that philosophy of work, and they're probably going to be better workers as a result. One thing that seems to be a common trend among the companies, and there's only a small number that I've been able to find that are actually bringing employees back as office workers in the tech industry in the Seattle region. Of course, manufacturing, retail. Or biotech. Yes. Yeah, yeah lab workers. Very different. But the unusual thing here is office workers five days a week, no hybrid situation. The common thread is that they started that way of the companies I've talked to so far. In other words, once you've gone hybrid, it's hard to go back to five days a week. Once you've gone full virtual, it's hard to start bringing people back hybrid, and then it's even harder to get them back five days a week. The other interesting thing is you mentioned recruiting, and it's a trade-off, clearly. They're giving up some people, but they're also getting others who are more interested, it seems, in that culture, in that engagement. And another founder that I spoke with who will be in the story explained that younger workers in particular seem to be craving this idea of being in person. Now, the question is, couldn't you just get that three days a week and be fine on Monday and Friday? No, I don't think you can as much because you don't overlap with 
with people. And so I, I do think there's a real benefit to being in the office that often, especially as it relates to young workers. And the mentorship that they can experience there. John, I think back to my experience as a reporter in my 20s in some of the newspaper newsrooms that I was in. I mean, talk about the original open floor plans. Long before it was popular with tech companies, newsrooms were, you were on top of each other, essentially. Your desks were right next to each other. And it took a little bit of adjustment coming out of college into that environment. But the value of overhearing the veteran reporters just in the background behind you just absorbing how they approached their interviews, how they dealt with sources, how they approached stories. How they threw their recorder across the room and had it smash on the wall. I'm pretty sure I learned the F word for many of those, <laughs> or at least how to use it appropriately in a professional, pseudo-professional setting. You know, like I learned so much that I never would have learned, certainly if I was fully remote, and I probably wouldn't have learned in the same way if I was hybrid. And to me, working on this story has been kind of like a little bit of a retro vibe, but also I've actually thought maybe we should think about forcing people to come back to the oh, office. Oh, God. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, okay. they're not doing that. Okay. We'll see if any GeekWire staffers listen to this. <laughs> oh, this is a good test. Good test. Will good anybody test. bring this up? Yes. Okay, so yeah. the first GeekWire staffer to let us know on Slack that they heard us discussing this new plan to bring the GeekWire workforce <laughs> back to the office five days a week I don't know. We'll take them out for coffee. Yes. How's that sound? <laughs> what a, what a Kudos. perk. What a okay. perk. Well, you should do a shout out that yes. you're still working on this story. And if people do know of companies that have returned to the five-day in-office workforce, they should reach out to you. That's right. In the Seattle and Pacific Northwest tech industry in particular, and again, office work, not biotech or other things that would require somebody to be at a lab bench or behind a retail counter, that kind of thing. Email me. Todd, T-O-D-D, at geekwire.com. Put five days in the subject line just to make it easy for me to make sure I find it in, the, in my email. And yeah, this has been a fun story to work on. It just came up organically. I went out to check out StatSig on the east side, sat down with VJ, and I realized, wait a second. You guys oh, were so, here five days a so week. So did you ask the question or did he bring it up? I asked. I asked. You said, how often are you in the office? Yes. And he said five days I, a week. I think that's how it happened. It yeah. was just obvious when I went out there that this was an in-person workforce and it seemed different. Well, I love that you had the instinct to pick up on that because this is a reporting tactic that you go in with a potential story in mind, but it's often this oddball stuff that you come across in the interview that makes the better story. So glad to hear you were... Eyes wide open on that. Absolutely. Okay, coming up next, an intriguing new book about Amazon and the plot twist related to its publisher. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop and John Cook. John, I heard 
via the grapevine this week about a new book coming out from the Wall Street Journal reporter Dana Mattioli about Amazon. The title, get this, is The Everything War. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon's ruthless quest to own the world and remake corporate power. Now, I wonder if she got permission from Brad Stone on that title because, of course, Brad Stone, the great technology journalist who has the everything store, Jeff Bezos in the age of Amazon. Is that the exact title of it? Okay, yes. It's certainly a playoff of that. It certainly is. It's a great pun. I mean, it's a great, like, New York Post-style Okay, once again, what is it? The The everything war, Amazon's ruthless quest to own the world and remake corporate power. Sounds like it has a certain slant. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Quick read on the blurb. With unparalleled access and having interviewed hundreds of people, from Amazon executives to competitors to small businesses who rely on its marketplace to survive, Mattioli exposes Uh how Amazon was driven by a competitive edge to dominate every industry it entered, bulldozed all who stood in its way, reshaped the retail landscape, transformed how Wall Street evaluates companies, and altered the very nature of the global economy. Oh, that for a blurb. That is a blurb, yeah. Here's the twist. The publisher is Hachette. (laughs) Do you remember the name Hachette? Yes. This was the company that got into a massive dispute with Amazon some years back. Now, I am not implying anything about Hachette's motivations in publishing this book. I just think that is a really interesting plot twist. If you recall, this was back about a decade ago, actually, and it was over online book sales and the pricing of those books. Amazon wanted to reduce the prices of those books. Hachette and other publishers were hoping to maintain the prices of ebooks. Amazon actually pulled some of Hachette's books from its inventory as part of this negotiation. It was a big deal at the time. I'm not saying that Hachette was motivated by that in any way. I will just say that as soon as I saw the nature of this book and who was publishing it, let me just say it's an interesting coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would think every major book publisher probably has a bone or two to pick with With Amazon. Amazon. So Hachette was in a major war at one point. Very high profile. Very high profile. I do remember that story. And yeah, interesting twist. Well, When does the book come out? I can't wait to peruse it. The book comes out on April 23rd. I've already put my name into the line to get an advanced reading copy, and I've asked for an interview uh, with Dana Mattioli just to see if we can get one. Hopefully Dana will be on the future future (laughs) podcast here. That's right. There's been quite a number of really good books about Amazon. Jason Del Rey we also had on the podcast talking about the battle between Walmart and Amazon, which I thought was one of the better books right up there with Brad Stone's books, but in a very focused way on the Amazon-Walmart rivalry. Well, it's such a fascinating company, and Bezos is an intriguing figure for sure. So there's just so much material there to dive into. I can't wait to read it. I think one question is how much of this is going to be a rehash of Wall Street Journal reporting versus original, and that I think will be one of the ways that this book is judged by people who follow the company closely, at least. So again, the title is The Everything War, and it's coming out on April 23rd. So we'll be watching that closely. Okay, coming up next, John, it's the return of our new segment, oh, My AI. My AI's back. So, I was wondering about that this morning. Okay, okay, stick around for that. Coming up next on GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. 
Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. Todd Bishop with John Cook. John, last week I introduced a My new... My AI! <laughs> oh, you, 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 <laughs> started, you changed the jingle. Yeah, I don't, just know, a little I don't bit. remember what it was. Yeah, I remember you put an, an emphasis on a different part of okay. the, the brand there. So that's good. We'll, we'll work on a jingle. Okay. But this is the segment where I present one of the applications that I find interesting about artificial intelligence, and you offer the skeptic's view. Not always, but <laughs> probably 90% of the time. All right. So last week, we talked about what I thought were some innovative text-to-speech applications related to books. This week, I'm putting a different twist on this, John. Next week's show will be with the author John Rossman, and his colleague, Kevin McCaffrey, they've come out with a new book called Big Bet Leadership about how companies like Amazon and T-Mobile and Microsoft and SpaceX create new eras for their business by making big bets. And it's a playbook on how other companies can follow that same formula. Cool. Yeah. So, can't, wait to, can't wait to listen. So I read this book via PDF and my AI application as part of preparing for this interview, was to upload the PDF to ChatGPT, to GPT-4. I subscribe to the $20 a month premium subscription, GeekWire does. And so I'm able to go in and upload a PDF. And what I love to do is, as I'm taking a walk, I have a conversation with the PDF via ChatGPT. So I'll just give you an example of it here. Remind me what Big Bet Leadership is about, according to the book. The book defines Big Bet Leadership as a strategic approach that emphasizes the importance of making significant, transformative decisions to navigate and lead successfully in the rapidly evolving digital landscape. It involves adopting a mindset that is bold, innovative, and willing to embrace calculated risks to drive substantial outcomes. Big Bet leadership is not just about making large-scale investments, but also about having the vision to see beyond the immediate horizon, leveraging digital technologies, fostering a culture of innovation, and executing strategies systematically and effectively. I'm able to walk around and basically ask questions of it. And so you can get into even some very detailed things like what does the book say about how Microsoft applies big bet strategies? The book highlights Microsoft's early strategic decision to license an operating system from Seattle Computer Products as a prime example of big bet leadership. This decision was pivotal in securing its position in the emerging PC market. You no, they the went gist. way back in the archive in terms of a big bet, yeah, <laughs> basically to the, the, the origin story of Microsoft. Well, you'll hear they get into this in the book. That was just the beginning of ChatGPT's answer there. But in the book, they get into much more recent things like T-Mobile's uncarrier strategy, Microsoft's pivot into AI and the cloud. It's really interesting. In so you're of almost kind of tailoring a podcast 
To myself. To yourself. And you're serving as the guide. Exactly. Okay. You can do this with a book. You can do this with a report. The way that I've found it works best is I start on my computer because it's easier to upload a PDF from your computer. And then I put in my AirPods. I walk around with my phone. And this feature of ChatGPT in the mobile app is a really interesting way to just extract information from something that you provide to it. That's the twist here. I'm not just asking ChatGPT to tap into its general bank of knowledge. I'm giving it quite a wealth of knowledge that I want to focus on and then interrogating that essentially. And I like your way of explaining it. It's sort of like I'm creating a podcast for myself where I'm asking the questions. I'm like the host of my own little podcast. You're in your own world, Todd's world. Based on this knowledge base. Yes. Yeah. But based on this knowledge base, I think it's really an interesting application. And no, I don't want to be in that world all the time, but gosh, it's super efficient. And my big thing is in a lot of these nutrition and health programs that I look at, part of it is just getting up out of your seat, getting off your butt and getting out. Now, ideally you would get out into nature and you would not have inputs happening at that time. But if you can replace a situation where you need to be studying something with a scenario where you're walking around instead and still able to accomplish that task, that's pretty cool to me. So I think there was a study at one point because I've been criticized for doing some of my meetings while I'm walking. Yeah. Yeah, including you. <laughs> it can be a little disorienting yeah, can, to be on a Zoom yeah. when the background behind the person is bouncing well, around. <laughs> I, I usually shut off the video. But there are some studies out there yes. that I've read about that you are much more highly focused and in tune with the conversation or the content if you are walking. Yes, yeah, I got to say. So you're probably consuming this book in a much more uh, comprehensive manner. This brings up something interesting that I've noticed in my own brain that I've always wanted to talk to somebody about, and I'm okay. going to do it right, right now? now in cool. the with brief me amount here? of time. Yes, with you, with and, you. And my AI. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have this thing where if I'm driving around and I hear an NPR segment and it gets repeated later, and I'm somewhere else when it gets repeated later. Like if I'm on a long trip or something, or if I'm more likely driving around town. So you hear it twice. Hear it twice. Yeah. When I hear it the second time, I remember exactly where I was when I heard it the first time. If I was sitting at a stoplight, turning a corner, something about the repetition of that audio translates into my memory of the physical world. I'm sure that this happens to everybody. And I've always thought to myself, there's got to be a way to use that to my advantage somehow, whether through memory recall or some kind of application that tricks your brain into putting you right back into a situation where you were by hearing the audio We need again. an Alzheimer's researcher here to uh, yeah. dive into this. I, if anybody out there knows like what this phenomenon of the brain is called, because I'm sure it's a thing. It's got to be something that people... Well, we need the Allen Institute uh, yeah. executives and scientists to chime in here. I don't think it's that complex. I think this is probably basic college psychology, frankly, at this point, or cognition, brain science. I don't think this is that complex. But I've always wondered, is there some sort of innovative application of this for learning or recall? So if anybody out there knows anything about this, or if this happens to you all the time... 
Another call out, email me, todd at geekwire.com and put in the subject line, brain, brain, brain trick. How's that? Brain trick. Love it. Coming up next, a conversation about OpenAI's new AI video generation technology, Sora. I'm talking now with Rahul Sood. He is the CEO and co-founder of Irreverent Labs, a Seattle area startup that is working on AI to turn images and text into video. And he's officially the first person to join the GeekWire podcast virtually via an Apple Vision Pro. So congrats. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, this, this thing is uh, wild. Let me just say it's changed the way I work. Um, it's incredible. So... I've been working in mixed reality for years. So like the, uh, the fact is I've got a drawer full of these types of devices. And, uh, for the first time I can say that this is one that's not going in the drawer. <laughs> this is one I'll use all the time. Yeah. Well, I know you from your past roles at a variety of startups and Microsoft, but you're now involved in this whole area of artificial intelligence video. Yep. You were one of the first people I thought of this week when I saw some of the incredible videos that were generated by OpenAI's new text-to-video technology. It's called Sora. But before we get to that, just to lay the groundwork here, can you explain what Irreverent Labs is doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we're, we're sort of at the forefront of uh, research in, in generative AI video. So um, very, very similar to what you saw from, uh, from OpenAI, I would say what they released is it, it would officially make them our first real competitor for, for what we're building. We are building a, a novel foundation model for video creation using pictures and using uh, multiple prompts. So we'll start with pictures and then we'll introduce text. We will enable anybody to be able to create high quality HD video using nothing but pictures, really. So for people who haven't yet seen the videos generated by OpenAI's Sora, I'll link to the site from the show notes. But for me, I looked at it, and as long as the videos were not featuring people, I found them at times indistinguishable from real videos. Yep, absolutely right. Um, look, you know, that's what we create is basically a, a foundation model that will create videos or generate videos that are indistinguishable from the real thing. What I would say is, you know, up until yesterday, the foundation model that we're building is like an order of magnitude ahead of what's out there currently. Um, what OpenAI released yesterday just really sets them apart from, from anybody for some time. It's very impressive. Believe it or not, I'm excited about it. And and I, I would say the reason I'm excited is first of all, the market is excited. They they validated that there is that first of all it's possible because a lot of people didn't think it was possible that you you know anybody could do this and and you know you can. And second of all, um, you know, there's a lot of room in this uh world for more than one player. And, you know, OpenAI is very tightly coupled with Microsoft. There's a lot of other uh, large tech companies out there that are looking at this space, they may not have the answers uh, to solve a lot of the problems with, with generating video. And we have those answers. So the biggest challenge in this space is compute. It's, it's, it's really the lack of compute. I mean, we don't know what we don't know when it comes to um, open AI, like in terms of how much compute they actually need for inference. Uh, meaning when you go and generate a video, how long does it actually take to do a one minute video? You know, is it frame by frame? Is it going to take hours? Like we have no idea. So we don't know about inference, how much it costs. Uh, we don't know how much compute that they're using for that. But we do know that, they, that they've used a ton of compute for training, an absolute ton. 
And so these H100 GPUs are very expensive. They're hard to come by. We have a small cluster for ourselves, but you know we're a startup and we, we're not worth $80 billion. Um, so what I would say is like anybody who's in the startup world in this space, you know, it's a challenge. It's a huge barrier to entry. It's like, you know, you're competing against this $80 billion giant that has unlimited access to capital that can go and train on 10,000 GPUs if they want. We can't do that yet. But what I will say is we're able to demonstrate something that's super compelling. And at some point in time, we're going to reveal that to the public. There's other companies out there that are looking at us to solve some of these problems. And uh, we will probably go from a very small, you know, startup out of Seattle to something very big and in, in, in the not too distant future. To underscore your point, it's an $80 billion company with a partnership with a $3 trillion company and access to all those GPUs. But at the same time, your startup, after you pivoted to working on AI models that can generate videos, you announced funding from Samsung Next, the Silicon Valley VC arm of Samsung Electronics. So you're on a path to partner with some giants. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as any, um, you know, any, any entrepreneur will tell you when, when you're building, you have to really think about what your future looks like in terms of commercial partnerships that may lead to maybe acquisitions, um, maybe like deeper strategic partnerships um, and that sort of thing. And in our space, there's just there's so many avenues. Um, for example, you know, when we're when we're uh, dealing with video creation, as you've probably seen, and I would recommend anyone listening to this to check out the output from, uh, you know, from OpenAI and what they're able to create with Sora, the, the movie industry is just going to lose their minds. <laughs> like, like, you know, we're going to see movies created with a, a team of four people that is going to be a, a, a blockbuster and it's going to cost very little money to, to make. And the movie industry is probably wondering, how are we going to compete in this space? And, and for us at Irreverent, we're making it possible to be able to take their content and put it in a, in a private, secure enclave where uh, we can train, we can fine-tune our model around their content specifically, um, which is super interesting to them. So I just think that this uh, whole avenue of uh, generative AI and video is just going to open up a whole new, um, you know, ton of new opportunities for creators. That gets into some of the larger issues. And you've been looking at this area longer than a lot of people who had their eyes open to the possibilities just this week. What are the questions that we should be asking about what this technology means for society? I do think that there's kind of like nervous optimism. I, I think if you if you look at some of the threads, you know, on Hacker News and stuff like that about about this product, you know, there's there's people out there that are, that are like, okay, this is it. The world is going to end now because, you know, you can pretty much do anything with AI. And then there's those who uh, who feel like there's got to be more than just one company that can do this. And then there's those who are worried about things like bad actors using uh, this type of AI to create content that is not only inappropriate, but, you know, borderline illegal and, uh, and, and could lead to deep fakes and all sorts of stuff, right? As a responsible AI company, we have to be very careful about how we train the model and what gets inside of our training data and make sure that we don't pollute our data, our model with, with any data that could really render it to a point where it can create stuff that we never expected it to create. So there's a lot to think about. Let me just say that. 
you founded this company with another startup veteran, David Raschino, a former Microsoft engineering manager who's the CTO of Irreverent Labs. So as you look at the vision that you both have for what this technology will become, what do you think people will be capable of doing with machines? Yeah, I think, um, you know, our dream, David and my dream for, for this company is somebody is going to use our model to create a, uh, you know, a movie with a with a, a studio that's like under five people, um, you know, and that movie could be a blockbuster. Marketers will be able to use it to create amazing commercials and, and ads and, you know, and do it from their basement without spending a, a ton of money on productions short form content creation. So people who create videos for TikTok and Instagram and YouTube shorts and that sort of thing can use this to not only supplement their videos, but maybe even replace some of the videos that they're creating. There's literally endless possibilities with generative video um, AI. Uh, there's just so much you can do with it. Game developers can use it as well, by the way. Game developers can use it to put their characters in a world, do some world building and just like test, you know, to see what what this looks like. How does a shop like yours, even as you adhere to responsible AI principles, make sure that the technology you release ultimately is not misused? First of all, just just ensuring that the that the model itself is trained with with the right data. That's important. So so knowing what data we're putting into the model is important. But also things like um, just watermarking because we can't. I don't want to say we can control everything. We won't know until, until you know, something does happen. So watermarking it in ways where people know it's from us, uh, that's important. Um, that way, you know, if something does happen that's, like, uh, not meant to happen or, you know, someone is concerned about something, they can contact us, let us know, and we can, we can you know, find it through the crowd. But there's, there's a lot of things. There's, uh, there's also um, filters that we use that, you know, are sort of like open source filters for certain types of keywords and like images and things like that, that we can, you know, use to discover things that are happening within the model itself. So look, at the end of the day, um, what I would say is sometimes it's a little unpredictable. We just have to be ready for to, to make changes to, to stop that sort of stuff from happening. Just lastly here, you've been in this industry a long time and you've seen a lot of things. If you look at the pace of advances we've seen in AI, uh, GPT-4, Dolly 3, and now Sora, obviously that's the open AI timeline and others have been making advances as well. For example, runway AI in generative AI video. But as you look at the pace of innovation over the past 18 months, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's not surprising. The rate of innovation with AI is just exponentially greater than than anything ever before that we've ever seen. And the reason is, is that the computers just train while we're sleeping. And the more compute you throw at a model that's working, the better and the more profound the results are. So what we saw yesterday is not a surprise. We knew it was going to happen. You know, we're surprised that it was, was such a giant leap from where the industry state of the art is the day before yesterday, which, you know, which, which, which was like surprising to see. But, you know, when we started on this mission, we said that generative video needs its GPT-3 moment. That was our aim, and that's that's where we are. But that's where you know Sora ended up yesterday. So so now it's like you know, do we 
does it worry us, uh, you know, as a, as a startup? And I, I, I'd say 100% no. There's more room for, you know, more than one company in the space. Uh, you know, you've got Pika, you have Runway ML, you have, you know, OpenAI with Sora. There's other, you know, other companies in the space, other research labs that are working on stuff, um, including Google and Meta and others. And um, I feel like when we're ready to show what we're doing, uh, we'll have uh, tons of opportunity for partnering and, and growing our, uh, our model. Rahul, thanks for jumping on and helping us wrap our heads around all this. Yeah, yeah, no problem. You know, I I was just saying to myself uh, yesterday, I was telling David, have you seen Supermicro stock price? Like, just looking at the AI companies, and it's just insane. NVIDIA stock and that sort of thing. And the reason is because this space is nuts. I was in uh, Arizona last weekend because we're building out our data center there and just looking at the compute and the amount that we have to spend to build these things up. It's a lot of money, but when you think about that in terms of productizing it at scale, it actually it's it's actually quite reasonable. So I don't know. This this, this space is wild. It's super interesting, and I'm always happy to talk about it with you. So, thanks, Rahul. Thank you. Rahul Sood is the CEO and co-founder of Irreverent Labs. That's a Seattle area startup that's working on AI to turn images and text into video. Thanks for listening. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.